Happy Friday and welcome to New Mexico in Focus, the podcast. This is Friday, April 15th of 2022, and I am your host, Kevin McDonald, executive producer here at New Mexico PBS. What a wild and woolly and most importantly, windy week here in New Mexico. We're definitely all used to wind here in spring in New Mexico, but really an unprecedented week on many fronts, namely the wildfire fronts. We have uh, a whole slew of wildfires burning across the state, probably most seriously around Ruidoso, where we know homes have been damaged. We know that lives have been lost, and we know that there were evacuations and all of this fueled by the weather conditions, which not just uh, referencing the wind this week, but of course, our drought and our rising temperatures, things we talk about a lot on the show. And we want to let you know we are working on a very special episode of New Mexico in Focus for next week, an Our Land special, uh, our environmental series with correspondent Laura Paskus trying to break down everything we can about the wildfire danger this year, which is already shaping up to be a doozy. But that's where we start with this week's podcast uh, and with specifically our line opinion panel. I want to let you know who's joining us this week. We have Tom Garrity of the Garrity Group PR, also attorney Laura Sanchez and a line regular, and we welcome back Rebecca Latham of Girl Scouts of New Mexico. Lots to dive into here. We know that a couple of the big things to listen to is the conversation about prescribed burns, which we know the Hermit's Peak Fire up around Las Vegas uh, in the northern part of the state started by a prescribed fire that got out of control. And again, how are we supposed to do these prescribed burns, which are supposed to help with the wildfire danger if they're just going to turn into wildfire? And the looming question over all of this, of course, is the state doing enough to fund water management, to fund firefighting efforts and preventative efforts? Uh, And so lots to dive into Let's get right to it with host Gene Grant and the line opinion panelists. Hello and welcome to our line opinion panelists. This week we're joined by Tom Garrity of the Garrity Group Public Relations. Next we have Rebecca Latham. She's Chief Executive Director of Girl Scouts of New Mexico. And welcome back attorney Laura Sanchez, one of our regulars as well. All right, guys, the major story dominating New Mexico headlines isn't something we expected to be talking about in early to mid-April. Several wildfires are burning in our state right now, as you know, and with a continued drought in the long-term forecast, the situation is looking bleak. Now, that said, crews are doing everything they can to control these fires, and we wish them well, but some of them actually started as prescribed burns. Those are meant to keep larger-scale fires from happening in the first place. Now it seems like... We won't have much of an opportunity to carry out that maintenance. Rebecca, how, do, how did we get to this point? Is it a prescribed burn problem solely, or is there something else going on here that has exploded all these fires across our state? Well, we know without a doubt that uh, that issues with our with climate, you know, a, a double La Nina year, you know, I, I think we know that, the, that those things, it's, it's beyond human control, you know, that New Mexico is in, in such a bad drought state. but it is questionable then why are we still, why haven't we learned from our mistakes in the past mm-hmm. with regards to prescribed burns? The the forest supervisor has apologized, has said that this was their mistake, mm-hmm. but I don't know how much, um, how much comfort that brings to those families who have 
who have lost livestock, who have yeah. been um, uh, moved out. Uh, and so I think un under the circumstances, you know, I, I know that the best intentions are there. Mm -hmm. It just is, you know, one less fire that had to have been started because we have the others that were not necessarily human caused. Good point there. Tom, I mean, a question's come up a bunch and I'm sure there's an answer here I'm not aware of. Why don't we do these things in the winter where we don't have to risk the wind? Yeah, you know, I mean, I, I don't know. I am not, you know, I, I don't, I put out fires for a living, but not these kind of fires. <laughs> a very tragic, uh, obviously tragic situation throughout mm -hmm. the state right now. It, you know, the thing with backburns, and I've been, you know, when I, back in my news days, I actually, you know, covered uh, several different uh, large-scale forest fires mm -hmm. and had a chance to learn a little bit about, you know, the, the science of setting backburns or, you know, to burn out that brush. And while it is a science, it's not an exact science, uh, you know, I think when we take a look at, you know, Cerro Grande, uh, the infamous fire yeah. that impacted Los Alamos, that was started as a backfire. Right. Uh, that... Uh, occurred in the May timeframe. And so, you know, I, why in New Mexico, uh, the April, you know, March, April, May timeframe, instead of, as you mentioned, uh, you know, the winter timeframe, uh, that's, that's a great question. And, but there are people with a much higher pay grade than I am mm -hmm. uh, who have answers to that, but mm -hmm. uh, clearly it's impacted the state in a variety of different ways. That's uh, and not to mention the lives of those uh, you know, uh, who have lost property and, and or lost loved ones in mm -hmm. the process. Mm -hmm. You know, Laura, interestingly, another immediate issue is fire uh, fighter staffing. Now, we did talk about that on the show last season, the season before that, and the season and going, you know what I'm get, getting at here? The U.S. Forest Service has been working through staffing shortages for years, but now the few firefighters they have are going to be asked to work an even longer wildfire season is the out-of-state help the answer? Because there's fires going right now in Oklahoma and other places. We don't have a whole lot of people nationwide. How, how do we solve the staffing problem? Yeah, I, I mean, I think it's a critical issue that we, we have talked about a lot. And every year we seem to talk about it mm -hmm. um, being a problem. And every year we face the shortage. Uh, what's different this year is that it's happening so early. This is absolutely, in my recollection, the earliest I've seen this happening here in the state. Normally, it's later in the summer mm -hmm. um, that we start to see these kinds of wildfires. But I think it's important to pay attention to the timing and the reason for that. I think our water issues are definitely um, escalating. It's getting worse. I mean, some reports say we're in the middle of a mega drought, right. um, the worst in you know, modern times, which uh, we're certainly a part of in the West. And you know, it's good that we're at least... Um, timing wise, we're not right now com competing. Competing is not the right word, but there isn't for competing scarce resources, I guess. We're not in the same position where California is exploding also with um, with fire. So we've had some hotshot crews come out mm -hmm. from California to assist, and they certainly have the experience given their problems that they've, they've faced recently. Mm -hmm. But I think we have to take a look at that, especially at a time when we have um, additional revenue from the in the state, right. state coffers. Yep. There should be something done to increase um, the the firefighting personnel and the people that are ready to to jump in when there's a crisis like this. Well, it's Laura, so just to interrupt real quick, did we miss something during this last session? I mean, we had the money. We knew summer was coming. We knew the kind of summer we had before. Did something get missed? 
Well, I think a lot of people do feel like there was a, a missed opportunity, not just when it comes to additional funding for training firefighters and mm -hmm. making sure we have enough people um, throughout the state, but also in terms of water management. There's right. some people who feel like we should have been putting a lot more money into infrastructure funding. We 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 know that there's a infrastructure bill at the federal level that was passed in late November that has money for infrastructure that mm -hmm. includes water infrastructure. So there will be a bump on that, but there needs to be, in many cases, a matching component. Some of that funding goes through um, existing programs. So it's additional federal funding, uh, a formula based for existing programs. But then there's also competitive grants that are part of that. Many of them require uh, matching components. So the state, I think, is in a position to try to increase that kind of funding. And I think that, you know, our leader, our leadership, as well as uh, the public needs to pay attention more mm -hmm. to this kind of proactive um, preventive work rather than just being reactive to the crisis. That's a good, I love the last thing you said there because Rebecca, when you think about it, you know, there really was no room this past session to really kind of squeeze in a very big discussion. You know, on last week's show, for example, a hydrologist from the Natural Resources Conservation Service told our Laura Pascas water totals from snowpack melts and spring runoff are going to reach historic lows again. Drier landscapes, more prone to fires. Everybody knew this during the session. Everybody knew this last fall. What got missed here when it comes to resources and money? Well, I think um, I, they've, <clears throat> they've planned some projects, some infrastructure projects that, um, I, again, I don't, the timing seems questionable because uh, they're doing work on... Um, on the, they're renovating the Elvado Dam, which is going to have oh, yeah. uh, some major consequences with regards to our water supply. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think it's really, um, it's unnerving for New Mexico to, to consistently be in a position of, well, we'll be okay if it rains, because that, again, we cannot control, at least right. we can't control now long-term climate. We may have a shot, but as far as what's going to happen this summer, we can't control that. Mm -hmm. So while, yes, there are big, major issues and, and questions and funding packages that need to be developed for New Mexico's water infrastructure, I think there are also some things, some smaller things that they could have invested in during this last session. When we have this kind of you know one shot flush with cash a lot of this money you know should have been used for non-recurring expenses mm -hmm. so um it's disappointing that uh some of the water um water infrastructure uh projects weren't addressed mm -hmm. hey tom uh great editorial in the santa fe new mexican from jonathan hayes from audubon southwest he contends the state legislature should have allocated more of its record-setting budget as just rebecca just mentioned to water infrastructure arguing, quote, the fate of the next generation is directly tied to how the state adapts its water resources management today, end quote. Do you agree mm -hmm. with that? Yeah, oh, absolutely. You know, I thought the, the editorial or the letter to the editor was very well thought out. He also shared a lot of different types of uh, research in that particular letter to the editor. Uh, you know, I, the, the water is a part of the public trust. I don't think you can leave water to private entities to kind of handle because then, you know, I, I, don't, I just don't see a positive outcome if that happens. Um, you know, we do have a lot of good examples though of uh, federal and state funded projects out on the Eastern part of the state, specifically connecting Ute Reservoir to Clovis in that area. Um, you know, that's a multi-billion dollar project 
Uh, and it is, uh, it's something that will actually provide needs in the short term and long term uh, for the residents there as they're kind of working through a lot of other different uh, issues uh, involving with, uh, with the groundwater there now. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I think, you know, to, to support what Laura and Rebecca have said, I think that the, uh, in different aspects, the legislature missed, uh, missed an opportunity. Uh, you know, and, and for that matter, I think the governor did as well, because, mm -hmm. you know, the governor started off by you know, really supporting uh, water in the very early parts of her term. Uh, in fact, creating, uh, making it a priority in that first year, which mm -hmm. is great. Mm -hmm. uh, I really kind of set it as uh, as a top priority for her and her administration. Uh, now it's up to the legislature, I think, to really kind of follow through and say, okay, great, let's make some of these things a reality. That's right. Just because it comes from the fourth floor doesn't mean it's a great idea, uh, but it's an idea that needs to be vetted out. And that's where I think the legislature missed it mm -hmm. uh, for the last couple of sessions uh, and not really seriously addressing the issue of water in New Mexico. Mm -hmm. uh, Laura, real quick, just got a couple seconds here. I would think the governor and everybody else is covered because Thornburg uh, Foundation and Water Foundation did a poll, 75% of New Mexico voters want action to ensure future generations have adequate water supply. 75%. If that isn't political cover, I don't know what is. You know, what more do, do these folks need to, to get going on this? Yeah, I mean, it's right up there with uh, mom and apple pie, right? Right. Everybody's in favor of this. So 75% is astronomical. I think uh, anybody would, would love those kinds of approval um, numbers. but. Um, you're right. They have mm -hmm. plenty of cover to do this. I expect we're going to see a, a good amount of uh, a bills next session. We, we're facing a 60-day session. It's um, you know anything and everything will be on the agenda. And so um, it, I ex fully expect to see a lot of bills. But in the short term, um, we will, as a state, have to work together to figure out how to um, leverage some of that federal infrastructure funding right. um, for water projects, because there's a fair amount of that in the federal bill. That's a good point there. And the governor, of course, has announced the state-run shelters for people in the areas affected, of course. And she's applied for emergency funding uh, from the Fed. So we'll see how that uh, works out. Um, difficult problem seems to change and worsen each year. Uh, thank you all for your thoughts on how we can better address it. We'll be back in less than 10 minutes with another discussion at the virtual roundtable as we look ahead to the primary election. Mentioned it earlier, but we have done a lot through our land, our environmental series, New Mexico's environmental past, present, and future on all aspects of not only the environment and climate change, but wildfires, uh, forest damage, forest recovery, uh, just a slew of things. And again, we're going to bring you a lot of good information on that in a special episode next week. But we also wanted to let you know that we have done something else that's really cool, especially for those of you with kiddos who just want to get more into the science of all this. There is a thing you may not have heard of called PBS Learning Media, where there are lesson plans and course and study work based around uh, different shows in the PBS system. And we are thrilled to announce that we have a couple different modules around uh, wildfires and around climate change and this topic that are now available to anyone who wants to take advantage of them. So to find out a little bit more about what exactly these modules include, who the target audience is, all of that good stuff, we're going to turn now to Arland correspondent Laura Paskus and her special guest, Molly Parsons. She is an educator and a consultant who helped develop 
these lesson plans and these curriculum for these learning media modules. So here now, Laura Pascas. Good morning, everyone. I'm here with Molly Parsons this morning, and we're talking about education. Good morning, Molly. Good morning, Laura. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining me. So um, just so y'all know, at NMPBS, we, um, we've been turning our Our Land segments into educational lesson plans for middle school students. And Molly is the brains behind all of that. She's the one who turns our content into something that makes sense for teachers and students. Um, we've got two lesson plans out there so far. Can you tell people what those are and how they might find them? Yeah, absolutely. So um, for those of you that are not familiar with it, there's an incredible resource online called PBS Learning Media. And this is a place where teachers can go and download um, lesson plans and student materials that then match up with uh, videos that have been created by various PBS related um, uh, organizations around the country. But this is a really special one that's really focused on New Mexico. So if you go to pbslearningmedia.org uh, um, and then search for our land, uh, you'll pull up a series of different lessons. Um, the most recent one that we posted is uh, three different lessons on the impact of wildfires on forests, uh, which is, as we all know, a really relevant topic right now. And we'll put the links in um, comments to that, um, to both those lessons plan, lesson plans so people can find them. I'm curious, you know, there's all sorts of age ranges. Why, why did you decide to focus on middle school students for these lesson plans? Yeah, so it was something that after conversation um, with Laurel, who's also at New Mexico PBS, um, there's uh, sometimes a lack of resources for middle school students. And so these are issues that are um, relevant that students can see and touch and relate to. Uh, so it's really just a good fit for kids of that age. I love that there's different, like there's the videos and there's resources for teachers and then there's various lesson plans and activities for students. And I know as you've been sending me these lesson plans and I've been looking at them, there's so many activities that I would love to do. Are there any um, as part of either the climate impacts on wildlife or forests and fire that, that were maybe like exciting for you to put together that you think anybody would wanna do? Yeah, so um, I definitely feel like these could be adapted for different age groups or even things to do at home and try out at home to learn about, about these topics. Um, I love the ones that are hands-on, so things that you actually get to go out into the environment and try out and do. So looking at um, snow melt uh, questions around when uh, how does shade and tree uh, cover impact snow melt and how does that impact our water availability? That's a fun one. And it's super simple. You can just take some ice cubes. Um, if you really wanted to turn them into snow, you could grind them up and put some in the sun and some in the shade and then time. What's the difference? How much longer does it take to melt in the sun versus the shade? And then that's a nice little model to think about how our snowpacks that are up in the mountains really feed our streams and rivers and how we depend on those. Um, so creating small models that then have um, a bigger impact uh, and help us understand a bigger thing. 
So I know as a kid and even now as a grown-up, I will do anything to get outside and away from my computer or my desk. But I'm curious, aside from like the getting outside aspects of environmental education, why do you think that environmental education is so important, especially maybe for this middle school age group um, and, and really why it matters for New Mexico students? Yeah, so... Um... Middle school kids tend to be really concerned about justice. They care a lot about what's fair and unfair. Um, and environmental justice is one of those topics that they tend to really gravitate towards because it relates to both what's fair and unfair for people, but also what's fair and unfair for the environment and the world around us. And kids have a lot of empathy at that age. I think they get middle school students get a bad rap because um, we all remember how hard it was to be that age. But um, they're an incredible group of young people in New Mexico that really do care about the world around us, that want to learn about it, that want to engage with it. Um, and one of the really cool things about New Mexico is we have such a wide variety of different biotic communities, different ecologies, um, different geological settings that we can explore and see almost everywhere in the state. I mean, you look around, you can see mountains around you, you can see dry areas. So it's, it's an amazing place for kids to get to explore. And I think um, there's a real movement around that and getting kids outside. And there was some legislation this year also that, that went into outdoor education um, and funding outdoor classrooms. And it's, it's an exciting time to be doing this work. So you've been an, an environmental educator for a long time, and I'm curious for, you know, maybe there's parents or teachers out there who say climate change is too scary, uh, forest fires, like, you know, these are, these are topics that are too big and too scary. What would you say to those parents or educators? I think first that your kids know about these things anyway, right? Um, they're hearing about it. And uh, I think a lot of times kids are made to feel very powerless in the face of these issues, um, especially when they're um, just being told about it on the news. They hear some story in passing and, you know, it's the end of the world. And um, I think by actually learning about it, learning the causes, learning the effects, and then learning what students can actually do to make changes in their own lives, to think about the future, to think about adaptations and mitigations, um, we're empowering them. So, you know, like most scary topics, um, you can't just hide it from kids. They're gonna, they're gonna learn about it one way or another. And by creating opportunities to have them engage with real facts, with um, the things that are happening around us in our environment, I think it's it's an opportunity. Yeah, I think um, we ha we also we have a really cool the next lesson plan coming up is really neat. We've been checking in with some of the people we've featured on the show over the years. Can you talk a little bit about what's coming next? Yeah, absolutely. So there's two additional modules that are going to be coming out here, hopefully pretty soon. Um, uh, the first is on um, waterways and drought and water resources in New Mexico um, and how those are really dependent on uh, weather patterns and climate might affect those pretty dramatically, will affect those pretty dramatically. 
Uh, and then the second is on environmental careers. Um, so careers that students could potentially um, follow and participate in and make that difference. So as we're thinking about, you know, positive ways that kids can, can think about the environment around them, there's ways that they can make a difference in the long term and helping them visualize what they would need to do to have different careers. So all kinds of incredible individuals who are doing things like forestry or um, entomology, or uh, I'm trying to think of politics, um, activism. So just kind of thinking about the environmental field a little bit more widely than, than just uh, an academic perspective, but who are the people that are really out there doing this work um, and making a difference in the world and then highlighting those things? Yeah, I love our show for that very reason as we get to meet um, and get to know all of these people around New Mexico who are doing these really cool things. Um, I also just want to mention that grownups should definitely use this. I know that I come across, I have a high school student and I hear her and her friends through elementary school, middle school, high school, talking about climate change, talking about these issues. They understand what's happening. Like you said, Molly, they know, they know these things are happening in the world. And I sometimes wish that more adults would um, dive into the science, be willing to be open-minded and learn new things. So we're going to have those links for the lesson plans in the comments. I would love for anybody, whether you're a student or a teacher, to open those up and try out some of those lesson plans. Um, Molly, I can't wait to see what you come up with next. You have been a dream to work with. I love seeing um, these plans that you share, and I think it's just, it's really cool to be able to work with you on this. I feel the same way, Laura. I feel like I've been given an amazing set of videos and um, expertise from all these people around our state and getting to highlight them and connect them with our students has been just a pleasure. So thank you so much for, for including me in this project. Awesome. Well, thanks, Molly. I appreciate you talking with me this morning. Thanks, Laura. Let's head back to the line opinion panel now with a conversation uh, that is our weekly show warm-up that we do on Facebook Live, so something we just didn't have time for in the regular on-air show. It's a great way to get to some other topics of the week and get us all in the mode for the taping. And again, our line panelists, Tom Garrity, Laura Sanchez, Rebecca Latham. Lots of great stuff in here, including some of the impacts of redistricting on the local level. We've talked a lot about that in the last year on the state level, national level, but the uh, process, the once every decade process has a lot of impacts uh, in municipalities and communities, small communities across the state. Uh, Rebecca Latham's got some great information on that as she's directly involved in the process here for the city of Albuquerque. Also return if you're like Laura Sanchez and myself, you're excited about the return of baseball here to Albuquerque, so a little bit of everything in here for you. And again, this is our one more thing, which helps us to warm up for the show each and every week. Here's host Gene Grant. I'm Gene Grant here in the studios of New Mexico PBS with our line opinion panelists joining me on Zoom. We're about to record this week's show, but before we do, 
They like to warm up by taking a turn at other issues. When I say other issues, there's a ton of them <laughs> that are on our, on our minds this week. Let me start with Rebecca Latham. Rebecca, always good to see you from the Girl Scouts of New Mexico. And what's your one more thing this week? One, my, one more thing uh, this week is uh, the Citizens Redistricting Committee. So every 10 years, the City Council of Albuquerque uh, is required to appoint a committee of 18 people, uh, two from each district, mm -hmm. to review our current uh, boundaries for City Council districts and make recommendations on any changes based on the census. So um, of those 18 citizens, one is a voting member, one is an alternate. I am a member of the Citizen Redistricting Committee, and we've met three times so far ah. with very little public participation. Huh. So it come to find out that really not much has been done to notify the public that this is even happening, which is surprising to me considering some of the questions and controversies surrounding how New Mexico uh, redrew the boundaries for our congressional Good district. Good point. Um, it is pretty obvious that we need a change uh, over the past 10 years the population of albuquerque has percent but northwest albuquerque has grown 15.9 percent oh, wow. all the west side districts as well as the far north northeast heights have increased while southeast albuquerque has decreased by four percent in the past 10 years so we clearly like we need to do a better job at um, uh, at appropriately electing officials, you know, to represent an equal amount of the population. Mm -hmm. So currently there have been six concepts that have been introduced uh, for redrawing the maps. And some of them, in fact, the one that the committee most seems to pay right now is, is most similar to, to uh, what exists currently. But there are other concepts that have been introduced that would either eliminate one city council district altogether by consolidating things like areas of Albuquerque, like Four Hills and the International District under one and the same city councilor. Wow. So whether you favor major change uh, to what we have in Albuquerque now, or you really think that um, things are working the way they are, this is an invitation to the public to, to attend the meetings. All the meetings are on Zoom. Mm -hmm. We've had three so far, as I mentioned. We go over things like, would these maps um, uh, compactness, like how much a new district looks like an actual shape. Uh, we go over minority voting rights mm -hmm. and how much of the population is displaced. Um, but it's a fascinating process. You find out more at cabq.gov slash 2022 redistricting. Okay. cabq.gov slash 2022 redistricting. Who's, how big is the committee? How big is the committee? Who's on it? What's the makeup? Can you give us a sense of that as well? Sure. The, there are two representatives from each of the nine council districts, one okay. voting member, one alternate. Uh, Catherine McGill is the chair. Ah. Um, uh, there are some names. David Buckholz is on the committee. Um, yep. Of course, now everybody else's name is escaping me. Always but uh, at the moment, right. <laughs> of course. It's like, oh, yeah, ask me what my kids' names are. Right. I love <laughs> David Buckholz uh, is a warrior for Albuquerque. I feel better about it if he's in the scene. So, you know. It's it is it's very very interesting, and then there you know there are statements like we need to break up these these areas of wealth, and then there are statements wow. that are like we need to keep you know communities of interest together, and um, and so it will be. There are currently uh, three more meetings scheduled, so we're halfway through the process already. Wow. A recommendation has to be made to City Council by July one, and then City Council will decide if they accept the recommendation from the Citizen Committee or come up. With really, that quickly? That's a. That's really not far from now. That's interesting. I'm fascinated by this whole thing. 
I'm curious, Rebecca, has there been any thought or discussion about flipping Albuquerque in this area basically to an at-large city council scheme like a lot of other cities do, meaning no one really has a district. They all, you know, look citywide at things. Has that come up at all? To my knowledge, we have not discussed that. Okay. Um, it, we're really just looking at, again, where the current boundaries, where where the population difference uh, is in each uh, district. Mm -hmm. And again, where can those boundaries be redrawn, either by consolidating and making big change or by breaking up um, or just by moderately shifting uh, in order to kind of right size sure. because you've got like 16,000 more people on the west side. Uh, and then, you know, again, that 4% drop over the past 10 years uh, in southeast Albuquerque. So mm -hmm. we just need to, I don't, I don't know what we need to do, but that's sure. the citizen part of it. We do, we do uh, desire more public participation. And in fact, if we can be helpful in that regard, Rebecca and Kathy, of course, is a friend of the show. I'd love to sit down with anybody you might think would be appropriate to sit down with and talk about this so we can generate some citizen input here because this is going to be kind of critical. Uh, those numbers are kind of scary. A 4% drop is no small thing. That, that is a very significant thing. But on the other end of it, I, I appreciate your points about the west side. We really do need to pay closer attention here to the trends that are happening in our metropolitan area. Very interesting. I'm glad you presented that to us today. I really appreciate that. Uh, Tom Garrity from the Garrity Group PR, of course, one of our regulars. We love Tom. Yay, Tom. Glad to have you back. It's been a bit. What you got for one more thing this week? Well, you know, I mean, just playing off of uh, what Rebecca was talking about, you know, it's I think it's easy for redistricting to kind of fall off the the table, so to speak, because, yep. you know, the you know, the state con uh, redistricting, the federal congressional redistricting, the public education. Yeah, you know, I know that the county has gone through theirs. And it's just you almost need a, a a checklist to keep track of all the different redistricting that takes place um, every you know, every ten years. So mm -hmm. you know I, uh, you know good good for Rebecca. I've yep. been in that space and it's a it's a thankless position. It's important. So thank you. Absolutely. Um, you know what what has caught my mind is just you know the, the more I'm you know kind of getting out and really seeing uh, you know reintroducing myself to small businesses around New Mexico is the small business and the the impact still that there a lot of them are facing. You know back in uh, 2020, you know, there were, uh, you know, 150,000 different small businesses in New Mexico. Uh, we lost 40% of those during the wow. uh, the COVID timeframe. Oh. And just for those, you know, the 94,000 or so who are still standing, you know, you think about it, you know, they have worked through the COVID restrictions. Mm -hmm. They've worked through the uh, workforce issues as far as hiring goes. Um, they're now working through inflation and supply chain issues. Mm -hmm. I mean, granted, all businesses are, but the larger businesses seem to be able to, you know, absorb it just a little bit more. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, inflation, supply chain, and then, you know, there's a potential of a recession on the horizon. Right. So, you know, I, I just want to be able to say that, you know, it, it's great to go out and support the national chains, but it's better to support New Mexico small businesses. And that's really what I'm, uh, is on my mind today. Nice. Now more than ever, isn't it? It really is a, a moment. You know, we could, every dollar counts towards something here. I appreciate that, Tom, a lot. I know your small business here has been a thing of yours for a long time, and I appreciate your perspective on that. And we're gonna have to really get out there and, and let our wallets help out, you know, basically. Um, my, our, another one of our regulars, Laura Sanchez is with us as well. It's been too long, Laura. Good to see you as well. We'll hear one more thing this week. Sorry, I, I muted because I, right. I have a, 
I have a barking pup in the background. <laughs> How unusual. <laughs> uh, uh, yes, right. <laughs> Um, no, my one more thing is actually about the isotopes. Um, ah. You know, baseball season is back. Uh, so wonderful to, to have it up and running. And um, we happen to be able to go to this uh, this week's home opener on Tuesday, um, April 12th. And it was uh, in classic early baseball, uh, freezing that yes. day. Lots <laughs> of wind, um, a lot, you know, classic New Mexico spring day. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, had a wonderful time. Uh, it was fun to watch the isotopes uh, on the field. And I think compared to the last time I'd attended a game, no masks, which was great. It was, you know, people were maskless and uh, that was nice to just see people's faces. Uh, but also uh, it was great to see the isotopes have a, um, a an early lead. It was uh, eight to one and then they promptly squandered that uh, <laughs> and ended up losing um, mm-hmm. 10 to nine in an extra inning. So that was uh, unfortunate, but um, shout out to everybody who was able to withstand those wins um, all the way through the end. I could not. We left uh, before it was over, but it was a wonderful time, and I really encourage back to sort of supporting local people to come out and see the yeah. isotopes again. Ooh, and speaking of which, Laura Sanchez, you remind me. I saw an article in the journal about the new food they've got at Isotopes Park. Some good. Did you guys have a chance to kind of graze around and we see did. what was going on there? We did. We looked around to see what it was. You know, they have a very interesting. Um, you know that I'm a huge animal lover. Yes, and yes. So, it was interesting that they had a, a, a stand that was um, different kinds of uh, brats that were elk. Um, they, had, <laughs> they had alligator. They had um, one that I particularly found objectionable, the rattlesnake slash rabbit oh, one. Um, I oh, have dear. a foster bunny right now, so I was horrified. Is that like a but burrito? What, what, is, what, is, what are we talking about? No, it was here? a hot dog. It was a brat. Oh, it, was it was a like brat. a jumbo oh, hot dog. Dear. Um, so that was unusual and very, very strange to see, but you know, to each his own, right. I don't judge, um, in terms of whoever bought that, but they also had, you know, those of you who know Pericos, uh, it's a Mexican food place, they have a Perico stand oh, wow. and that was, that took off like wildfire. People were getting tacos and carne de vada burritos and all kinds of stuff. So yeah. they do have some very good new stuff and the dimes were pretty good, but it wasn't a super packed game. So mm-hmm. it'll be interesting to see how they manage that yeah. when, when they have more people attend, I think. I think the weather did not help attendance too much. Good stuff. Thanks for getting us off though for baseball season, actually. Uh, I know a lot of folks are really looking forward to it. Some people here in the building, huge baseball fans. Uh, It just changes the air. It just changes everything for some people when baseball's going. So after wrapping up there, thanks for joining us. New Mexico in Focus airs Friday nights and Sunday mornings right here in New Mexico PBS. Lastly, we want to make you aware of uh, next Tuesday, it is time for another episode of Growing Forward, our cannabis podcast, all about the cannabis industry in New Mexico. It's in collaboration with New Mexico Political Report, KUNM Radio, with hosts Andy Lyman and Megan Kamrick. And this latest episode is all about testing. You might remember if you listened to past seasons that in season three, we visited uh, the, the one and only testing facility for this cannabis product in the state, uh, and that was a big area of concern and questioning, and there's been some developments there, and of course, there are legal recreational use sales going now, and there's a big day coming up on the 20th, 420, a lot of you know that date, it's the biggest date for cannabis sales uh, really in the country, and so we wanted to get an update on testing. There's also been some news headlines around this issue. And so that comes out on Tuesday, but wanted to give you 
a bit of a taste, a preview of that. Uh, and again, this is a little chunk of our conversation with the head of that testing lab here in Albuquerque. We introduced you to him in season three, but wanted to get caught up on where things are now and if he is backlogged or if all is going according to plan. So here is a snippet of Growing Forward. We're weeks into legal recreational use cannabis sales, and according to the Cannabis Control Division, the state has seen millions of dollars in sales so far, and will likely see a spike in transactions later this week on April 20th, or 420, the biggest day for cannabis sales. One thing that's easy to forget is that all of that cannabis being sold is required to go through several tests before it hits the shelves. One thing that's easy to forget is that all of that cannabis being sold is required to go through several tests before it hits the shelves. Those required tests look for things that might be unsafe for consumers like fungus or microbes or residual solvents when it comes to extracts, but there's also a test for potency. And while the goal of testing cannabis is to keep consumers safe and informed, it's also a business. Last season, we visited Rio Grande Analytics, a cannabis testing lab in Albuquerque and one of two state-approved labs in New Mexico. Rio Grande Analytics CEO Barry Dungan moved operations from Las Cruces to Albuquerque a few years ago, after the only approved cannabis courier at the time left the industry. It's been several months since we last talked to Barry, and business has picked up a bit but there still isn't that drastic increase in demand that he expected, partially because many new licensed growers haven't been growing long enough to see a full harvest and therefore don't have anything to test. Yeah, we're, uh, you know, things have definitely slowed down since the beginning of the year. Um, I think part of that was just the 5 to 15 pound flower lot size change. You know, there there will be a reduction in business because of that. But I think we're also still waiting for licensed producers to come in and that they haven't had enough time to go through a full growth cycle and harvest and, and samples coming in. So I think we've really only got two or maybe three new customers with the new BioTrack IDs and all that kind of stuff. So I know the big wave is coming, but it hasn't necessarily hit us yet. Can you go say, clarify what the you said the flower lot? Yes, yeah, so um, uh, in the previous rules, um, every five pounds of flower was tested. And in January, it was changed to every 15 pounds of flower is tested. And so that is a basically a 66% reduction in flower tests. Now, that didn't happen overnight because uh, not many people had maxed out their plant counts. And, you know, they're growing a bunch of different strains, so they can't bulk all of that to one test. Um, so we're just kind of starting to see more of the effect of that rule change. How's your staff changed since the last time we were here? I think we were here maybe last fall, August, I think. Uh-huh. We've got a few more people now. Uh, we've got uh, new technologies in-house now, and we can offer new and better services. Um, we haven't doubled, but we're working on doubling. And then we're also working on a satellite facility in Las Cruces. And so that will also allow us to expand in another area of New Mexico. So we're excited about that. Has anything changed in what you have to test for? Um, it's in the process of changing, but uh, the new microbials and pesticides are starting July 1st, and then the new requirement for the labs to go collect samples has been staggered until uh, March 1st of next year. And so, we'll and so what that means, what you just mentioned there, that means that uh, st- your staff will have to go collect samples from a grow site or something? Manufacturer, growers, anything. Okay. Uh, any compliance test will have to be collected by uh, a third party and not necessarily made by the producers or manufacturers as traditionally it's been done. Could 
I guess by your reading, does that mean you could have a courier go do that for you, or does it have to be a representative from? No, there's a mechanism through the USDA to get certified um, to do the collections for the labs, and so it doesn't necessarily have to be one of the people that you're looking at here. Um, but I'm, I'm not aware of anyone that's licensed and able to do that. So there's nobody to contract out, so it would have to be somebody that you're looking at here right now. Again, still time to subscribe to Growing Forward if you don't already, so that that new episode, when it comes out on Tuesday, will be ready and waiting for you there. You can get it wherever you get your podcast. Just search for Growing Forward Cannabis in New Mexico. Again, new episodes come out every other Tuesday. Also want to let you know that there's an Instagram page for that now. So on Instagram, also just search for Growing Forward and follow along with the Growing Forward team. That's going to do it for us for this episode of New Mexico and Focus the Podcast. Our thanks to the entire production and content crew here at New Mexico PBS for all of their hard work and dedication. We'll be back again in just a few days with more great content. Until then, stay safe, stay healthy.